Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. When Jamie Wheel comes on Bulletproof Radio, we always get into some mind-bending topics. He's a friend who specializes in neuroanthropology. He looks at the nitty-gritty between science and human potential with a lot of precision. And that's why our interview about hedonic engineering ended up being a multi-episode miniseries for you because it was more than would fit in one episode or fit in your head all at one time. We pull apart his book, Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God's Sex and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind. We just couldn't get through all the cool stuff to talk about when he was on last time. So if you haven't heard the previous episodes with Jamie, uh, you're missing out and I'll do my best to get you caught up on this one. In the first couple episodes, we looked at sex and we looked at hedonic yoga of becoming and an interesting study he did with uh, with couples looking at what happens physiologically to turn sex into something that is transformative. But that was only half the book. So this time, we're going to look at death and God parts of the book. And yes, a podcast about death. Are we going to be super gothic? I was going to put on like a studded collar with little... Uh, you know, little chrome studs and black leather, but that would have probably been more for the last episode about hedonic <laughs> sex. So that wouldn't be appropriate. But what I can tell you um, is that it's always tough to talk about death because I think the AI algorithms actually suppress that because people naturally shy away from it. But we're all talking about God. So what, are, what is the role of this in biohacking and in human consciousness? Well, kind of guy has paid some attention to that to us. Well, if you missed the last two episodes, real quick intro, Jamie was a founder of the International Flow Genome Project, of which I was, I believe, the first investor. And they research and train people for ultimate human performance. And he looks at science and human potential, written a few books, and just an all-around interesting guy. Jamie, welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me, Dave. Psyched to be here. All right. Let's go deep on your book, Choose Your Own Apocalypse, which is, by the way, the best name for a title. <laughs> uh, tell me about the meaning crisis. Tell me about the meaning crisis. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we're all kind of living in it right now, but it sure as feels like that the two pillars that have kind of held up our contemporary Western consensus, let's just say, um, were organized religion, the, the longest standing way that any person made a sense of who am I, where am I, how did I get here, and what ought I do, and who are we, right? So that was almost always a very strong um, download from the religion into which you were born. And then on the other side, for the last three, 400 years, we've kind of had this modern liberalism, this idea of rationality, science, evidence, five senses, as well as a kind of civic project of effectively all men and women are created equal and entitled to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, regardless of race, color, or creed, at least in theory. And what we've seen, you know, gradually, but now suddenly all at once, kind of like how Hemingway was asked about going bankrupt, right? It was gradually right. and then suddenly and all at once, those two pillars have collapsed. And it, you know, the long-term Pew Research trends and those kind of things, tracking the demise of organized religion, that's fairly well documented people understand that. But we have reached an inflection point there where for the first time ever in human history, more people don't belong to anything than belong to all the other things. And that is, that is a radical unmooring of who we are and how we identify. And then you're like, okay, so now that kind of puts us in the realm of like Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and the new atheist. You're like, okay, God is dead, you know, tap dance on his grave, religion's the opiate of the masses, so we're all going to move into modernity and evidence-based rational atheism. And it was like, well, not so fast, right? Because we've also got this collapse in faith in, and we, you know, we're seeing it in this last 18 months, we've seen it in deep scrutiny of the UN, of the CDC, of the WHO, deep scrutiny of transnational and or international trade agreements, military alliances, all the things. And now being a globalist, especially if you look at YouTube comments, which is something you should probably never do, but if you do, you will see people sniffing and sneering at anybody who is attempting to say, hey, we all need to come up with coordinated anything coordinated solutions, coordinated policies, coordinated legislations, because that all is seen, being seen as a threat to the new world order. Throw in, we can't even trust the sort of the priest class, 
of modern liberalism anymore. So you've got the Ivy League entrance scandals. You've got OxyContin debacles with doctors no longer being, you know, 80% of heroin addicts all got their start on Oxy. The, and it turns out you you should not blend that into your coffee. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's that's needleproof coffee. That's a different one. <laughs> right? um, You're a bad man, Jamie. You're a bad man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um and so we are in this situation, you know, throw in corporations. You've got everybody, you know, Goldman in the 2008 crisis. You know, everybody wanted to grow up and, you know, all high achieving kids wanted to either get internships at McKinsey or Goldman. And you have the big short, you know, Michael Lewis's book exposing exactly how, you know, double dealing Goldman was there. They were in the 1MDB scandal. McKinsey helped Jacob Zuma, who just submitted to jail today, um, the former uh, South African leader. You know, McKinsey fully conspired to just loot the South African treasury of billions of dollars with Zuma. And you're like, wait a second, these are all supposed to be the best and the brightest. But McKinsey did it with the best PowerPoints. So I can respect that. Sex. And anyone, <laughs> anyone who trusts an investment banker gets what they deserve. I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> let's let's just throw up a two by two and and workshop this. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I can only say this because of my career in Silicon Valley, right? Um, and there's some really smart people who are investment bankers and work for McKinsey, but the organizations do sometimes things. You're like, how is this possible? Yeah. But so so what, long. What you're saying though is we don't trust the things we used to trust. There's no more but, Walter Cronkite, right? Yeah. There, there's no more sort of saying, there's not even, you know, up until very recently and probably still not for most people because everything's so fractured, not even a, an address from the Oval Office, right? There's nothing that anybody, that anybody can take as singularly factual and shared truth. And then that's leading us to fracture. So rather than sort of shaking off both of those earlier versions, meaning 1.0 and like organized religion, meaning 2.0 modern liberalism, rather than us kind of standing up and saying, okay, we got to do this together, we're getting sucked to fundamentalism. People are doubling down on belief systems and not just religious ones, right? QAnon, which you were alluding to earlier, is, a, is another one. Uh, pandemic, any, any belief system where people are doubling and tripling down in the face of con contravening evidence, that's happening. And, and so is nihilism where people are just giving up knowing anything at all, or the fact that anything is actually ever truly knowable. And we see the rise in diseases of despair and all the accompanying kind of rudderlessness. So we're in a tight spot and it's not happening in a vacuum, right? Because well, let me, let me ask you this. Um, what about people who live in Africa or the Middle East? Uh, how, how are they included in, in all of this? Because it seems like yeah, in the West, it, the, the case you make in the book is that you pretty much go into denial or anxiety, you become more and more polarized, you join a tribe and you you know kind of ex exclude and expel everything else. But we have a whole bunch of people who are, you know, come, came online in the last you know, five, 10 years. Do the rules change when you look at it globally? I, I think, um, I mean, that's a great question. And, and I'm, I think that... Um, you know, for the bottom, literally almost half of humanity, this is just a champagne problem to be discussing meaning and whether it's going well or not. <laughs> like, what's for lunch? <laughs> yeah, that there, there's just some very, you know, bottom of the, you know, Maslow's hierarchy kind of things that have to get done and aren't getting resolved in a meaningful way. And on the other hand, if you go to Johannesburg, if you go to Lagos, if you go to any, you know, any any gathering of people um, who have access to global information and news, you know, their critiques of post-European colonialism are generally way more informed than most Republican congressmen, I'll tell you that much, you know, and they had, because they've been living on the sharp end of 400 years of, of colonialism and neoliberalism. So that there you go. Their experience is political, man. I you, you mentioned Republicans. So now everyone has to be tribalized. All right. Exactly. If, if that, if that comment was either really attractive or really offensive to you, you should probably stop listening now. 
Um, just <laughs> go to the next episode. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, no, no, the, the reason I said that, though, it seems like it's really hard for people to be in the middle. I, I did this thing on Instagram. And I came out as being vi curious, mm-hmm. vaccine industry curious. I'm like, hey, an mRNA vaccine for cardiovascular disease that was tested to be safe over seven years would be really interesting to me <laughs> because mm-hmm. that's a thing that's likely to have an effect on like a huge number of people. And I would very strongly consider something like that. Um, but that means that to the the hardcore uh, vaccine promiscuous crowd, as in I'll let anyone stick anything in me without any standards, um, well, like how dare you say it would take enough testing? Like you should sign up for it right now. And it's like I'm not you know, promiscuous enough. And then there's the no vaccine even with, you know, 100 years of evidence, would I ever consider any one of those things? Like the very extreme, the tribalism, the polarism, your polarization you're talking about, like I'm in the middle. I think most people are in the middle on a lot of these things. And they see the the shrill, angry vegans who sound exactly like the shrill, angry keto forever. <laughs> like they're the same thing. And the very extreme liberals sound exactly like the very extreme conservatives. Mm-hmm. So how much, how much of of this is actually just quiet people in the middle being, could you idiots just shut up on both ends? We want to just like live our lives. Do you have data or a sense of that? Well, I mean, th- there is a, there was an interesting study on this. So it's not specific to your answer, but it is kind of gives us a, a peek under the hood of the dynamics, um, which is, it was a study out of Australia on dark triad and, uh, and uh, authoritarian personality traits. And they took three different populations. One, social justice, one alt-right white identitarian, and one kind of center progressive-ish. And the center folks, the, the moderate middle that you're, you're, you're speaking to, um, didn't score at all on authoritarianism, Machiavellianism, narcissism, or psychopathy. So they were generally decent people, live and let live folks. But both extremes did. Both extremes were off the charts. And you're like, oh, okay, so this is, you know, this is Yates's the best lack of all conviction while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. You're like, wow, you really do have a bunch of not that nice people hijacking the mic and creating increased schisms for power. And then the people next to them are like, well, I believe in the things you're giving lip service to. And that could be a really meaningful thing like patriotism or a really meaningful thing like social and racial justice. I believe in those things. So you're the one shouting the loudest about them. And then I look over here and I see the people who are being painted as my enemies, right? And there's this scary ass no man's land in the middle that's just tank traps and mines and mortar shells. And, and, and the more we get factionalized, the higher cost, higher risk taking a runner across that no man's land to find mutuality is. And so if it feels like the other is so profoundly strange and other and typically even bad or evil, I have to huddle even closer to the whack nuts on my team. And those whack nuts are actually bad actors. So we've lost the, you know, the proverbial Walter Cronkites. We've lost the FDRs, you know, the, the sort of the sort of soothing voices of trustworthy authority. And as a result, we're getting swayed and pulled apart by demagogues. So what do we do about it as biohackers, as human performance mm-hmm. experts? We're getting pulled in multiple directions to join the latest cult or the latest identity mm-hmm. and things like that. And... All right, so we let's say that I agree with you. We have a meaning crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what is there to be done? What does history have to teach us? What does science have to teach us? Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, at my heart, and this is you know largely informed by my wife, who's a Montessori educator for her whole career, is M- Maria Montessori's educational philosophy, which is, you know, not that different than Abe Maslow's psychological philosophies, but kind of like left to our own devices, we're generally good. And we generally want to move towards growth and wholeness. And so if we can kind of declutter the dysfunctional things and we can make healthy, positive choices more readily available and supported, most people will choose to do the right thing. So if we think, okay, um, we, you know, the whole like modern liberalism with no belief, that the nihilism, that's that's going too far to one guardrail, doubling down on ancient beliefs with no justification or 
brand new ones that are that are just as fact challenge into fundamentalism that's not helping us so what would what would meaning 3.0 look like which would basically be like the linux or the sort of blockchain of culture building right could we do something like ideo's human centered design toolkit right which is basically saying you know ideo is that famous design firm that came out of stanford i'm sure you're deeply familiar with them and they after a while were like hey we design computer mice we design kick-ass office chairs we do all these things but actually our super secret sauce is the way we go about designing things and then they opened they created this human-centered design toolkit that they shared globally for free and said if you are a community in ghana in delhi in sao paulo in wherever and you've got a hard problem like clean drinking water or how to educate your kids or you know or, or electric power and solar energy whatever it is here's a great way to come up with better decisions and creations so that was kind of the thesis of the book is wwid what would ideo do right to solve this meaning crisis and if we want it to be available to as many people as possible we you know god bless you for doing all the high-end high dollar biohacking right but we've actually got to dial back the clock and say bottom four billion has got to be cheap or yeah. free we've got to know the mechanisms so we can make it available right? yeah and that's you know and that's true i think that's one of the most interesting things about the psychedelic renaissance for instance is that it creates a specific reproducible and predictable state more or less on demand which in proximity to high-tech measurement devices then lets us look under the hood of that known state then we can actually measure and track it and then we're no longer beholden or wed to that specific key to fit in the lock we're like, oh, this is the serotonin system, or oh, this is prefrontal cortical activity or a default mode network. And as soon as we get to the level of our actual bodies and brains, we're no longer getting having to get wrapped around the axles of taboos, superstitions, customs, and aversions around which ways we get in. It's just us, and there's probably three to six or 10 ways to reproduce that same effect. And that feels like a very important kind of democratization of this stuff. And what's the effect that you're reproducing? I'm not sure I, I got it there. I mean, getting people to not uh, naturally or automatically recoil from something that they that they don't like, that that's tough. That's low level neurological stuff. It's not a conscious choice. You feel aversion to something, <laughs> you feel aversion before you can think whether you should feel aversion. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if, if we go to the opposite sign, right, if you take a look at something like MDMA PTSD therapy, right? Mm -hmm. And so let's just say that the folks that have been selected and screened for those studies or have generally been extra banged up by life and adverse events, right? Childhood abuse, sexual trauma, war trauma, whatever it would be. PTSD is no fun. Yeah. yeah. And what they have reported... <coughs> And what they've reported in their own experiences is, hey, under the un, with, with that molecule in their brains and bodies, they feel you know, and and what the scientists have you know have tracked who are who are conducting the studies is, you know, higher serotonin, higher oxytocin, higher prolactin, these kinds of things, and that those things typically create a state of security, enoughness, connection, trust. And that's trust and enoughness that they can then connect with a therapist so that they're no longer sort of feeling isolated. It's also trust that they're able to go into their own catalog of memories and neurophysiological stress or trauma. Like, you know, like Bessel van der Kolk's, you know, the body keeps the score. You kind of go into that body that holds the residue of all those negative life events. And they're able to take out those memories, discuss them trustingly and connectedly with a therapist, and then they're able to rework them. And then they're able to put them sort of, you know, back into their memory banks, however that happens. And they're, they're overwritten with a slightly more expansive, more resourced um, relationship to it. And, you know, if you take that, um, there was a study at Oxford University on effectively, you know, isolation, loss of status and control, how do, how do groups of people do in stressful times? And it's typically decreases in serotonin, decreases in dopamine, decreases in oxytocin that basically leave people vengeful, paranoid, 
prone to conspiratorial thinking, prone to being mean and less altruistic. So you're just kind of like, okay, it's not that this is all just reduced to our neurochemistry, right? We're complex creatures, we're social, psychosocial being, you know, biological beings. But on the other hand, right, down at that level of the stack, those things are consistently happening. And they sort of give us a signature of high trust and connected and able to withstand a lot of hard hits or separated, isolated, and antisocial. And if we can adjust those, and that's where we ended up talking about sexuality last time, right, was because Rick Doblin had shared with me, uh, the founder of MAPS conducting those MDMA studies, he's like the closest analog we've found to this really positive therapeutic experience with MDMA has been the post-orgasmic state. So that's just one avenue. You're like, oh my goodness, if we could... You know, we know that folks that have been cooped up in their homes for a year and a half that have been, you know, just doom scrolling their news feeds and getting sucked into, you know, MSNBC and Fox, you know, as, you know, dueling shout boxes. We know that sucks. We know we end up less resourceful and generally shittier for ourselves and each other. And we also know how we can begin modifying that, where we can discharge. This is Robert Sapolsky's stuff at Stanford, right? He wrote that famous book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, right? Mm -hmm. We've got lots of ulcers, right? We're, we're forever, we're sort of all suffering micro PTSD. And many of us have hits of macro PTSD. And if we, if we have ways to discharge that, if we have ways to get back to zero, just level balance, then we have a chance to live forwards, giving it our best shot, not forever, dragging anchors behind us. So in traditional societies, they didn't have therapists, but they mm -hmm. had elders and they had you know, the, the local medicine person who would mm -hmm. as likely deal with some altered state trauma thing as some sort of plant medicine, sometimes doing both at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, drumming rituals, uh, rituals that have meaning that actually cause healing, you know, rites of passage and things like that. Um, do you see those coming back? Well, I think that's the entire fun project we have. Like when we think about, <clears throat> you know, this book is 50-50, neuroanthropology, like let's look to the past, see what customs and habits we've done, being these wacky tribal primates that we are, but also bring a level of neuroscience to understanding why those things have worked. And then forward-facing is the culture architecture part. Like now we know that stuff. Now we know what the Lego blocks look like. How do we lay them in interesting creative, joyful, productive combinations going forwards. And so to your point, right, um, Roger Walsh, who's uh, at UC Davis, he's an MD, PhD, sort of both physician and anthropologist, um, has done some fascinating work on monophasic and polyphasic cultures. And monophasic is one channel that's effectively the Western world post the Enlightenment. So what I can see, touch, taste, or think or feel, five senses, that's it, empiricism, versus polyphasic cultures, meaning I have, we, we welcome and regularly experience trance, possession, you know, like visitations, vision quests, you name it, a whole much dreams, a whole much wider spectrum of consciousness that we consider valid information streams, basically right? And the question now is, is how do we get back to a postmodern polyphasic culture, right? Where we, we, we crank open the channels, we, we open that, you know, the sort of the rusted radio knobs and start being able to pick up a wider range of both body brain inputs, kind of our neurophysiology, as well as the information that comes in those. So for instance, right, our monophasic culture of the Western world is typically tired, wired, and stressed. That's how we often feel. And it's high, hyperactive beta wave activity, super focused executive function and default mode network rumination, poor air exchange, often a lot of perception, you know, per um, persistent fight, flight, stress, neurochemistry, norepinephrine, cortisol, all the things that kind of are great for fleeing the tiger and rot your bones and eat you alive. You know, if you're staying awake at 3 a.m., rehashing a conversation with your boss or a Twitter war you're in the middle of, right? So all of those kind of things. And much of the biohacking movement, right? Everything from intermittent fasting to hot and cold contrast therapies to all of these things is attempting 
right? To pry open that window and saying, we want to feel more. We don't want just to live in 72 degrees permaclimate with infinite calories. You know, we want to, we want to go hungry. We want to binge. We want to be freezing. We want to be sweating our balls off. We want, right? We, we want to, we want to do all these things because there's just an intuition that in fact, that is healthier. So if we can build in culture architecture, if we can build in the rituals that used to carry us forward so that we can you know, change the radio dial on a regular basis, then we end up with more range and resiliency in our bodies and brains, but also in our minds and hearts. And there was a study of like Haitian voodoo practitioners. And interestingly, you know, once a year, they would have these periodic voodoo ceremonies with possession and trance. And, and you could literally just go hog, hog wild and lose your minds. And, and in those communities, this was Wade Davis's research, I think, that in those communities, there was zero um, clinical um, cases of psychosis. So it was like, here's a cultural container, like get your yayas out, go nuts, literally. And then boom, 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 you've scratched that itch, you're good to go. And Robin Dunbar at Oxford University has done something with the San Bushman in the Kalahari and has found that they engage trance dances, but they do the trance dance more and more often when there's higher social friction and conflict. So you're like, oh, so this is cultural medicine. You know, like this actually works. We can literally sweat our prayers. You know, you've got a sort of groove and reconciliation committee baked into your social structures. It's interesting. Uh, Robert Cialdini, mm -hmm. when he came on and talked about influence uh, recently, I don't think we got into it in the interview, but in his book, he talks about how when people make music together, mm -hmm. um, even just singing together, things like that, it makes them way less combative and way more likely uh, to influence each other positively, uh, which is uh, which is really cool. Yeah, I think it's why the, why what, the CIA had a had a file on Bob Molly. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I can see why. I mean, hey, good God, he used uh, he used cannabis. Who would have imagined? Well, did you hear the news today? Amazon's going to stop testing its workers for cannabis. Hmm. Yeah, only like twenty years too late, guys. <laughs> um. All right. In, in your book, uh, you talk about omeganism or omega, yeah, omeganism, not omegaism. So, okay. How do we get from where our conversation is now to, to the point? Cause that's kind of where you're going with all this is this new idea. What is it? Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Yeah, well, it's actually an old idea. It's a Teilhard de Chardin's uh, concept that, hey, and he, he was a uh, early 20th century paleontologist, paleontologist and Jesuit theologian, but he was so scary to the church that they basically banned and suppressed all of his writings until after he died and shipped his ass off to China. <laughs> so, so he was definitely, a, he was one of those sketchy Jesuits who were sort of, you know, on the borderline of heresy. But his idea was, he's like, hey, um, the same way that we have the biosphere or even the atmosphere, we also have something called the nuosphere, which is our sort of shared realm of collected mind. And he, and this is, you know, back in the 1920s. So this was a very strange concept. All they had was radio and telegraph, right? He saw the future, that guy. He, re he really <laughs> did. And, and he was like, hey, there's going to be at some point this collected like hive mind where we're all plugged in together. And, um, beautifully, kind of interestingly, he's like, it's not going to be just dissolving into the Borg, right? We're not just going to sort of lose ourselves in some totalitarian mind fuck. It's like every, but every special snowflake is going to stay special and we're going to turn into, you know, a, a mountain of snow. And that, that is going to be some phase change 
in human experience. And he, he thought it was going to be so profound that he even called that process Christogenesis, which was literally that all people connected together for the first time ever would literally become the sort of the body of Christ at the end of time. And which is, you know, a theological concept, but we can we can unpack it in practical terms too. Some uh, some people probably haven't heard of his work, and frankly, I can't say his name right. Say it one more time. Teilhard de Chardin. Teilhard, it's the de Chardin. Any French word, even though I live in Canada, it just comes out of my mouth sounding like I just ate marbles. So apologies. <laughs> uh, my uh, my auditory processing uh, machinery isn't that strong. So de Chardin. Um, I've read a bunch of his stuff, and it's actually made its way into cyberpunk and a lot of science mm -hmm. fiction. So there are entire novels where they describe the reach of the local internet as the new sphere. <laughs> so exactly. when you're in space and you're beyond where you can talk to the planet, oh, you're out of its new sphere. And you know, the closer you are, the higher bandwidth you have, the more connected you are to the consciousness there. And we're kind of building that system. In fact, that's been part of my career. How do we do long distance, high speed networking? Exactly. Um, but it's not plugged into our heads. Are you saying that we're going to want to go with Elon Musk's Neuralink kind of thing? Well, funnily enough, I was just at a dinner on the future of religion uh, last night with some of his um, business partners at the Founders Fund. And they were talking about the the move. I know this guy. The yeah. move to. Was this Peter Thiel or? It was uh, Luke Nosick and some some other. Oh, guys. Luke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I knew Luke when he was twenty two at a. At, he was a roommate of a friend of mine's uh, in Santa Cruz. Uh huh. Hey, yeah. Luke. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> cool. But his whole premise of like why they would go to Mars was to create a ten minute gap between the fucking internet that's wrecking Earth. And I was like, holy shit, that's a long way. You could maybe just unplug your router. Um, but no, I, I mean, yes, obviously all the things are going to keep getting explored and Brian Johnson's kernel and, and Elon's Neuralink and all that kind of stuff. But I think I think we're already there, right? I mean, we already have a smartphone in our hand and we have, you know, technologically mediated telepathy. I can ping a friend and, you know, within seconds anywhere on the planet, boom, they have my idea or thought. So, um, you know, seven of the top 10 companies in the world right now are all about stitching up our newosphere, about creating a shared meshwork, right? And it just happens to have, you know, silicon bits and bytes. Uh, at, I sure hope there's consent center. in there somewhere. Well, I mean, <laughs> the, these are these are the questions, right? So, so. Teod was actually not like a sunny optimist about this. He's like, he's like, it's, this is in no way a layup. He goes, and in fact, it, there's going to be three intersecting trends that, and, you know, and they're going to conspire at the last minute, which is the planet, the carrying capacity of the planet, which is pretty prescient for a dude in the 1920s. There's not a lot of shared consensus that far back. He, he didn't think his way into this stuff. He was feeling his way into it. The best futurists, uh, in my opinion, are are seeing something before it happens. Yeah. They're not, they're not thinking of it before it happens. Yeah, and then fundamentally, Dumbledore's army versus the Death Eaters. He's, he's like, there's going to be people that are drawn towards this global humanist project being lived by love. And there's going to be people that aren't and that are resisting it and digging in their heels and looking to smash and grab. And he says, he goes, and, at, and he goes, they're going to crisscross at that last point. The omega, you know, this, the omega is the opposite of alpha. Alpha was in the beginning, right? Our whole Judeo-Christian times arrow kind of thing. And, and his idea was, well, what does the end look like? And he's like, and it's going to come down to the absolute wire, and that's what's going to make it so profound and meaningful. And you think about that, you're like, okay, well, we've seen, you know, everybody knows that like Joseph Camp, you know, that George Lucas ported Joseph Campbell's hero's journey into Star Wars and that kind of stuff. But you're like, actually, we might have all been living this Teilhard's Omega story because, you know, at the last minute, you know, at, at, at the 11th hour against all odds, a small band of rebel misfits, you know, defeats evil in the empire and creates, you know, creates peace through the, through the universe. You're like, yeah. that's everything. If, if we're living that, I, I hope I'm just an Ewok. That'd be so relaxing. If you could peace out in the old growth, I think you've got some up in British Columbia, man. You've definitely yeah, got they're, some. They're cutting them down right now. The last 1% of old growth just got uh, the British Columbia government just approved them to be logged. There's people getting arrested right now. If any of you guys are listening, you bastards, stop cutting down those trees. They're old. Let them be. All right, there we go. PSA. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's nothing to be said on that. There is a question as to, you know, and if, if anybody hasn't read Richard Power's book, it won the Pulitzer called Overstory. It is a beautiful, beautiful yeah. reflection on trees and old growth trees and everything else, but just okay, let, life. Let's pause for a second there. If you listen to Bulletproof Radio, and you've probably heard me say that 
reading or listening to fiction, not nonfiction, for 20 minutes a day, even a couple times a week, noticeably changes your brain in a beneficial way. It's a performance enhancer. And if you want to listen to an incredible story, over story is the way to do it. And if you're on with Upgrade Collective, that's bonus point homework for you guys. Over story. Just Google it. Just an incredible book. You will not believe how good that is. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the other one that I recommend in, in Junction, I just finished, because I agree, dude. I mean, I, my brain um, trying to wrestle with the world just gets beaten into the dirt over time. You know, it's just, there's so much and there's no really- It's just a lack of coffee, man. You can fix it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but shifting gears into fictive narrative, like a yeah. ripping yarn, a beautiful story, um, is so soothing. Um, and another book that I'd super recommend on this front is, is called A Ministry for the Future. And it was Obama. Oh, wow. It was his top book for, the, for 2020. Tristan Harris, um, who you probably know as well, um, had recommended it to me. And it's basically the next 40 years and what actually happens. And the guy who wrote it is like a Hugo and Nebula award winner. So he's a banging science fiction writer. But it's also, he was also part of some great book, sustainable think tanks. And so it maps the next 40 years, pulls no punches. It actually starts with a mass casualty heat event in India where 20 million people die. So America, the, the American West with our heat dome, we've just been glimpsing similar things. And it just- It's a little, little dark, but man, the, the description of people dying in a heat dome is pretty brutal. So Kim Stanley Robinson writes some pretty gruesome stuff, but yep, it's uh, uh, it's also one worth doing. So you guys can be like, here's these, these two like uber nerd biohackers talking about a science fiction book and a Pulitzer Prize winning book. Some of these books have thinking in them that you're not going to get anywhere else. That's really cool. And there's a new kind of like short-term apocalyptic climate change-based, I don't know, futurist books? Uh, there's a, a specific name for the subgenre. I forget what it's called. Well, I mean, some folks have been calling it Hope Punk, which I kind of- Punk Hope Punk, versus, which I like, yeah. I kind of like that. So I think it's worth your time uh, to look at one of those books. I would probably put Overstory as the one that's more inspiring and mm -hmm. will make you love trees more. Ministry of the Future is a bit dark, but the it is first, worth reading. The first half you. is for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good point. So there you go. A couple of big reading recommendations that aren't from the author. <laughs> but of course, you might also at the same time want to check out Jamie's new book because he's going deep on all this stuff. Yeah. What what I appreciate is that you're willing to go deep and quote, you know, people from hundreds of years ago. So you're you're doing your deep research. And then you're saying, all right, what's in common over this? And this is a technique that shockingly works better than doing it all from scratch. <laughs> and that's even why my book, uh, Game Changers. I'm like, let me ask 500 people the same three questions. What do they agree on? I'll probably do that <laughs> because that's just easier than trying to figure it all out yourself. You came up after all of the research you did, both mm -hmm. like the hard science as well as looking at traditions and looking at various cultures. And you said there's really five techniques. And that's what it all comes down to. What are the five techniques? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this gets us into the culture architecture, like what are the good Lego blocks and can we build fun things with them? And for sure, um, and these aren't the only five and you could absolutely have your own list and, and, and make a case. Um, but the ones that seem to come up again and again were respiration, embodiment, sexuality, substances, and music. And that those, if you look at any culture's kind of core transformation engines, like how did, how did that given group of people reliably access inspiration, so peak states, healing, and connection? And how do they do that stably or consistently over time? Those five show up again and again. Now, they might not have been on the front door of the courthouse. They might not have been in the newspaper. But if you look under the hood of almost all traditions around the world, they're playing with you know, several of them at a time and often all of them. And, and once we know that, then we're like, okay, now, A, they're all, they're all shrouded in taboos. And rather than being like, oh, that, you know, that, that's sketchy territory, that's volatile and controversial, we shouldn't go there. I think you actually look at that and you're like, oh, precisely because they have so many tripwires and landmines around them shows you that there was something potent there to protect. And effectively, no civilization um, worth its salt didn't have strong taboos around what are permitted states of consciousness, what do we do with our drive to procreate, and how do you control and, 
and, and, and modulate sexual impulse. How do we relate to our bodies and use our bodies to shift our states you know, from and dis and discharge trauma. And what do we do when we get together? And as you said, as you know, like if, or Cialdini's point of like, what happens when we make a joyful sound together? What happens when you know because it can go mob mentality, or it can go church. And so how we get to how we gather has also always been a very closely closely modulated thing. So for instance, you could have music to support ap, you know Apollonian order like army marches and church hymns because those were those were reinforcing the social norm but you pretty much any polka right? yeah polkas hell yeah but you but you couldn't have <laughs> uh, but you couldn't have you know woodstock and elvis because that gets sketchy right you can have sexuality for procreation because we want to expand our numbers right but you couldn't have sexuality for transcendence because that is starting you're starting to run around the the priest class Right, you can have substances. This is well established, and I know you know this whole world. But I mean, if you look at Western capitalist society, right? Uh, you know, basically, caffeine, nicotine, and alcohol became our holy trinity because caffeine and nicotine helped us. Amen. Right, helped us stay awake and work longer, harder, and alcohol helped us take the edge off that when when we when we had to sleep. But you know, cannabinoids, psychedelics, anything else? Mm -mm, no way. Don't do those because that might cause you to question the system that we're a part of. So bottom line is, is those are the big five. Um, um, you know, respiration, how we change our breath, um, embodiment, and specifically I took a cut at pain, pleasure, the endocannabinoid system, and effectively the vagal nerve, but kind of our central, basically our core brainstem activities and our autonomic regulators. When you play with that, you pretty soon realize that you're living in your body, but you're not the same as your body, which I think is a part of all of this. Yeah. I mean, and, and it, sets, it sets us up. I mean, as soon as you get decently good at playing with the knobs and levers of those states or, or, or of those categories, you realize, wow, I can, I can change the channel on my radio and I can experience a really fascinating range of consciousness and there are specific zip codes. There's specific kind of crosshairs where you get where you get very interesting things happening most of the time. And so that would be, for instance, if you're engaging in any form of breath work, right? Whether it's hyperventilation, like holotropic breath work, or it's super slow, profound, pronounced vagal breathing, where you you know double the length of your exhales to inhales, and kind of are signaling your whole body to power down, or you're even swapping gases like scuba divers, and you're changing out the oxygen, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide blends, you can radically change consciousness. The same with pleasure and pain stimulation, particularly when combined with sexual arousal, right? Because typically, if you look in the animal kingdom, right, sexuality is painful and brutish and short. So there's a ton of anandamide, there's a ton of endorphins, there's all sorts of things that accompany what is otherwise a quite violent and painful act. And it gets to the point where you're like, oh, within plus or minus 90 seconds of orgasm, you know, all pain gets rewired as pleasure. And you're like, okay, that's really interesting. How, how do we navigate that? Music as a huge amplifier and substances to prime what other, other elements of, of your stack are sort of either missing, not available by some other mechanism, or desirable. And, and so that kind of gets us to the dying part, right? And do you, do you want to okay. dive into that? I want to get into dying, but I think there's a recipe that goes beyond just those five. And, mm -hmm. and I just want to say something too. Everyone has been trained mostly by, by reductionist thinking and really by big pharma. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> um, to... Uh, uh, to think that there's one thing that's the cause yeah. and there's one thing to do. There is zero evidence that anything has one solution or that one only one thing is a solution to something. That's something that you tease out with science. And it's easier if there's one. And it's a lot easier to run double-blind placebo-controlled trials if you're not tracking 500 different variables. Mm -hmm. By the way, how many placebo-controlled trials have you seen that tracked for the phase of the moon as a variable? None of them. But it, they said, we controlled all variables. No, you didn't. You just forgot because you didn't think it mattered. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of weird things. But what you did is you said there's five things. 
And this doesn't mean that if you go out and like, I'm going to get laid every night, <laughs> I'm just going to focus on the sexuality thing and I'll get embodied. Someone will tie me up at the same time. There you go. You're not doing all five. But when you talk about the recipe for these things in your book, mm -hmm. um, there's actually about nine things yeah. in it. But do they have to be in order or is it just they have to all be present? Well, go, go ahead and read them. Let, let, let's, okay. let's do the roll call. So the first one, super saturate your body and brain, right? What does that one mean? Well, that was, I think the rest of it was with endorphins, with dopamine, endorphins, okay. right? It, it, it was with all the pleasure-enhancing, state-inducing okay. neurochemicals. And then you talk about optimizing your endocannabinoid system. Yeah. Which means what, take a bong hit? Is that what you're saying there? Well, I mean, there's, right? I mean, that, <laughs> but it's also responsible from runner's high and it also shows up in post-orgasm. Okay. So like however you get there. Okay, now, so the orgasm can do that. Yeah, pot doesn't, THC is not my friend. It just doesn't do much for me. That's why I did not smoke before I went on uh, Joe Rogan's show. <laughs> like I would give the worst interview <laughs> of my life if I did that. <laughs> I'd be an idiot. Yeah, al um, although I think it's massively underused as an intentional medicinal. Um, where uh, people, yeah, if, I could see that. if people could take the time and, and edibles are notorious for people overshooting the mark, but if you can find the appropriate strain and people are getting way smarter and better about this, there was actually, there was a, uh, an FBI stash from the 1920s. So before the, the marijuana prohibition acted like 1932 or 36, whenever that was, and it was full prohibition, they just discovered in the last five years, a whole bunch of vials and tinctures and all this kind of stuff. And their knowledge of cannabinoids back then was off the charts. They had so much more precise variations of strains to human clinical conditions and diseases, all these kind of things. It was, and, and it just got eclipsed in prohibition. So we're kind of getting back there a little bit. And were you able yeah, to, to tune it in your system? It's advantageous. There's a company called Level Blends. Mm -hmm. uh, I invested in them a, a few years ago because they were looking at the very specifically your, I think it was your genetics, and they were looking at specific strains and extraction techniques to figure out if you look like this and you take this strain, you extract it this way, it'll have this predictive effect. Because hmm. the problem is a lot of people try like, oh, it doesn't work or CBD doesn't work. But it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> that's like saying food doesn't work, but you might have to try some different foods to see which ones work mm -hmm. to cut out the guesswork. So I, I love what you're saying there. So we, we lost all of that medicinal knowledge same as we're losing a lot of medical knowledge right now through oppression of doctors. Yeah, and so to stoners, I would say not so fast because what you've done is you've over-indexed your endocannabinoid system. So actually you're mm -hmm. not getting the natural healthy range that you would. You've just pinned it. And it's like taking testosterone, right? As a result, you're not shrink, right? If, you, if you're high all the time, then it doesn't do the thing it's supposed to do. The same with caffeine, right? Any, anything we adapt to. But to people who are like, oh, I'm not a stoner, I'd say actually think again. And actually okay. can consider, consider really titrated, almost kind of acupuncture use, specifically around precipitating these states, not as a daily habit, not as anything else, right? You, once, in a, once in a blue moon, once a week, once a month, once a year, whatever. But consider it because the endocannabinoid system is so profoundly impactful on our entire nervous system and physiology. So that, that would be the next step. Okay. Your third one was in training your brain out of beta wave executive functioning. Certainly with all the neuroscience stuff at, at 40 years, that's um, something I understand, but a lot of people mm -hmm. don't have entrainment systems available on demand. So how do you, how do normal people get their brains entrained out of beta? Well, look, I mean, the simplest is close your eyes and, and breathe slowly out your nose and you will probably drop down into yeah. alpha. But Bonus points if you put your your eyes and your attention on the middle of your forehead with your eyes closed. And it, with if I had electrodes on your head, you'd go into alpha. It's really not that hard. You're, you'll drop your beta that way. Yeah. Deep, slow breath, eyes closed, look at your third eye. Yeah, and actually our, our buddy at Stanford, Andrew Huberman, has talked about even shifting of eye gaze. So so you you did one which was focused and up into your brain, and he noticed mm -hmm. an, an, a similar relaxation effect if you go to 10 and 2. And you, you, oh, and, and you go to soft-focused peripheral vision. And nasal breathing also massively down. With your eyes open. Eyes, yes, eyes open. Yeah. And so, so to your point about it's never just one thing, you're, you know, it's like, well, which button am I pushing right now? It's like, it's all of it, right? It's us. <laughs> it's us. Okay. And so this is more like, how do we play the symphony of ourself? So, so that's a cheap and easy way to do it. Yeah. And then number four, reset your brainstem. 
Is vagal nerve stimulation? What does that mean? Yeah, well, actually, let, let's let's stay a little a sec on okay. on the delta or, or on the EEGs, right? On brain okay. waves. So, um, and interestingly, our, our friends at Advanced Brain Monitoring discovered this by accident because somebody was at a lunch break and had one of their, you know, whatever it was, thirty six channel uh, headsets on. Maybe it was even hundred. Probably twenty fours, yeah. Twenty fours, or even maybe it was the hundred plus okay. ones. But in any event, somebody was eating dark chocolate. And suddenly, and, and, and they were still hooked up to the machine. And, and apparently dark chocolate meaningfully juices you over into gamma, you know, temporary gamma wave activity. I believe it. So you're like, okay, neat. So that's, that's the high, super flashy, like eureka kind of pattern recognition moments. And, you know, certain advanced Tibetan meditators, right? But generally not most of us. Most of the, the time. The Tibetan chocolate meditation is my favorite. Exactly. That's your, that's your next bulletproof coffee, right? You're going to be like <laughs> chocolate, chocolate suppositories. Um, so, so then you can go below alpha into theta and theta is the one where most of us only, we, it's so relaxed that most of us are drifting. We nod off to sleep and pass through it's it. It's the daydream state, right? It's the daydream state. It's the hypnagogic state of like, I'm lying on my bed and I feel I, I jolt myself awake because I thought I just stepped off a curb or something, right? But if you can actually stay lucid during that, it's a very expansive place. And then below that, like 0.1 hertz to the 4 hertz, and we, we touched on this last time, is delta. And delta, you know, that's, you know, a hop and a skip from brain dead from flatline yep. EEG. It's where growth hormone happens and all the low-level operating stuff. Yeah, and there's tons of research that's coming out of sleep research showing how important it is overnight. But you can also access it when you're conscious, especially, now you can either spend your 40 years of Zen, right? You can do the long-term lineage path, or you can look at um, nitrous oxide, ketamine, or uh, electrical stimulation to the cranial nerve. And and any of those will also get you into those zones. Okay, so now we can hit the next one. All right, so we reset our brainstem that way. Or no, that was still um, getting out of beta. And what's the brainstem reset part of the recipe? Well, that is just a seeming correlate. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.